radical results today. We are going to talk about radical results because Jesus here and a series of parables, which are really quite amazing, talks about how to achieve radical results. Now, we're interested in radical results. So advertisements, obviously, if they're doing advertisements, they're focusing in on the fact, you know, we're interested in, we're not interested in mediocre results. Not like, hey, want you to do this diet because like nobody's going to notice you've been on this diet. So do this diet, right? Who gives an advertisement like this? Wear these jeans, wear this cologne. You know, you'll be incredibly average. Right? We're, not, we're not interested in mediocre. So what we're interested in is something radical. And Jesus says, look, you want to achieve radical results? I'll show you how to achieve radical results. And here's the thing we need to know right up front, though. Jesus' kingdom is radically different. Like, the way he goes about this is going to be radically different from the way that we would go about it. All right. So as we start Mark chapter four, let's just back up a little bit. Let me tell you how Mark three ends so we can take a running start as we go into chapter four. So here's how it ends. Jesus, we're told constantly by Mark, like it's almost every other sentence, it seems he's telling us how the crowds, huge crowds are coming to follow Jesus. So Jesus became so popular that they sent a religious delegation from Jerusalem down from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee to check out to see what Jesus is doing. And so the delegation gets there and they see Jesus healing lots of people. They see that Jesus is an incredible preacher and he really knows the Bible. And he's like right on. He's a great teacher, great preacher, healing people. He's loving on people. He's helping people. He's healing people. He's very humble. And they look at that. They go behind closed doors. They have a little committee meeting. They come out and they say, here's our verdict. Jesus is demon possessed. That makes perfect sense. But they go farther. They say, he's not just not demon-possessed by any kind of demon. There's a specific demon in charge of Jesus' life. This is what the religious people say. And that demon is, his name is called Master of the House. So they say this to Jesus, and Jesus says, well, that's really interesting. Because I am the Master of the House. That's how chapter 3 ends. That is really important to understand as we jump into chapter 4. Jesus Christ is the master of the house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us today. We've all come, different backgrounds, different places, different feelings this morning, different things, different challenges that we're facing. Father, speak to us. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand the message of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. Help us to understand and allow it to sink down deep into our very being that we might achieve radical results. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 4 is an extremely important chapter in the book of Mark, and here's the reason why. There's almost virtually no teaching by Jesus in the entire gospel of Mark. Mark is very interested in what Jesus does, not what he teaches. However, in Mark chapter 4, we get almost an entire chapter. So if you have a red-letter Bible, do you know what that is? It's where Jesus is in the God, where all of his words are in red. All right, almost the whole chapter is nothing but a sea of red because he, like, teaches the entire chapter. So we get all this teaching. Why? Why do we get this teaching? Because we're at a critical moment. He has done so much. He has said so much. And now he's saying, I want to tell you how I'm going to run my house. I am now, I am the master of the house. Here is my business model, right? We're familiar with business models. Here's, here's my business model of how my house is going to run and how my followers should function. And it's going to be radically different from what we thought before. Let me tell you one other thing before we read it. We start reading, we start reading the first one, and that is this. 
says that Jesus, after he tells his first parable about the soils, says he gets it done, he tells it the first time, and that, like, people couldn't understand. And so his disciples come to him and says, you know, we couldn't quite understand that. Can you explain it? And then it says, it says, those who were with Jesus could understand, like, nothing was fuzzy. Like, things became clear if you were with Jesus. Now, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls the disciples, it says he calls these disciples so they could be specifically, quote, with him. And now, after the first parable is given here, he says, those who were with him could understand him. At the end of Mark 4, this is three times, at the end of Mark 4, it says, those people who were with and around Jesus were given understanding. So I want to say to you, there's something about being in the presence of God that things that are fuzzy, and there's a lot of things in life that can be fuzzy, become clear. There's something about being in the presence of God, things that are fuzzy in life become clear. We've been talking about something called the grace encounter for the past month. What is the grace encounter? Grace encounter is simply this. You uh, follow me on Twitter, and I send a tweet. I send a tweet like once a week, and it's simply this. Let's pray that everybody experiences the presence of God on Sunday. Is that working? Is that working? Exponentially, I've received comments and emails from people who, said, you know, people who don't even know about the grace encounter. Said, you know, I happen to go to church today, been to church all my life. I, I experienced the presence of God like I've never experienced before. I actually had somebody uh, email this past week. says, you know what? Things were a little bit fuzzy for me, my own terminology that they were given. All of a sudden, I understood. I felt God's presence, and I understood. Why am I telling you this? Because God wants us. The number one thing people desire is to be in the presence of God, and things are fuzzy unless we get in the presence of God. Why go to church, everybody, unless we're going to meet God? Are we kind of just wasting our time? Shouldn't this be what we're about, to meet God? So I send this tweet. Now, I had a lot of people say, I don't have a smartphone. So it's really important that we all kind of pray. It's not a long prayer. Like I sent a tweet last week, you know, pick up your hammer and swing it as hard as you can. That was the tweet. You would had to be at one of the other sermons to know what that meant. But that means, you know, just pray a quick prayer. All of us pray at the same time, 150 people praying, God, let us all experience your presence. So a lot of people say, I'm not on Twitter. How do So in your bulletins, in your bulletins, you can sign up for a text message. This is, this, why is this so important? It's really important that all of us at the same time, because Jesus says we're two or three are gathered, united together in something, okay? So we all are praying a simple prayer at the same time. You have to pray for an hour. Last night I sent the message and I got down on my knees with my family and we just said, God, let us experience your presence. Boom, that's it. God wants to answer that prayer and I encourage you to consider signing up for that and to consider praying and praying with all your might about that. Now let's go to the text. Mark 4, verse number 1. And Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. You know what's interesting? And I'll just tell you the parable from here. He tells his parable about four different types of soil. And what is really cool is he's telling it. He says as he begins, you see where it says, I underline it for you there. He says, people were standing on the shore. It's the same word in Greek for soil. So he says, I'm getting ready to tell you a story about four different types of soils. You can understand my kingdom as they're all standing, standing on the soil. Now, what we're told is this. This farmer, he goes out and he's sowing seeds. And there's four different types of soil. There is uh, this hardened soil. 
right? It's the path. So it's hard as a rock and it, the seed can't, it's just hard. Can't see, can't because it's been trampled by people walking on it. No seeds going anywhere with that, right? And the farmer's just slinging it out on the path. And then there's this rocky soil. And the rocky soil is really thin soil. So the seed hits it because the soil is really thin. It springs up immediately. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It makes this huge deal. But then the next day it's all gone, right? And then there's this soil that we call the crowded soil or the thorny soil. It's crowded because there's trees and there's bushes and there's weeds and all this. And so what you see is the farmer is going out. And then he's the four soils, the good soil. And he's just the powerful seeds. He's just flinging the seeds just randomly, freely. Oh, look, here's a path. Let me throw a bunch of seeds on the path. And here's a bunch of rocks. This is a wonderful place to grow crops. Let me throw here. And here over here is a bunch of trees and weeds and bushes. Well, let me throw a bunch of seeds here. Here's my question. Who is this farmer? Where did he go to farming school? And I want to know, are we subsidizing this farm? Because if we're subsidizing his farm, we need to get our money back because we're not spending our money well subsidizing his farm. What is this nut doing? He's just throwing the seeds everywhere. And here's the first thing we need to understand. Jesus Christ is soil blind. Jesus is the farmer. And Jesus is soil blind. Years ago, I was reading a book about how to have explosive growth in a church, how to woo, really have some radical results. And you know what it said? It said, focus on people. As your business model, target people who look alike, act alike, think alike, and are in the same stage of life alike, right? So you're running a business, right? And you, you, what are you going to target? And Jesus says, we're going to target everybody. You mean you're going to target the people over here, like the rocky soil or like the chances of something growing, I mean, or the thin soil or the crowded soil? You're going to do that? Yep, that's what we're going to do. Well, that's not going to work. That's what we're going to do. Well, that's not going to work. That's what we're going to do. Because Jesus is soil blind. The first thing he wants us to know about this is this is the way he's running his business. This is what he's going to do. All soils look the same. He's taking the seed, which he says is very, very powerful. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, we're going to throw it. There's going to be no, no separation whatsoever. All soil is the same. We're going to freely give it out. Now, after he tells it, the people are all scratching their heads because they don't get it. Right? They don't get it. What does that mean? So his disciples come and say, can you explain? So he explains it, but then he takes it a step deeper. And he basically says, you guys, you guys are the soil. You're the farmer and you're the soil both. Your reaction is going to be one of four ways. You're either going to be like the hardened soil, the past soil, and say, you know what? You know, I don't want any part of this, God. My heart's hard. I don't want any part of this. At any given time, we react to God. We're all, every single one of us is going to react to God one of these four ways this morning. We, all, we just are. We're always reacting to God. God, no thank you. Or we're going to say, like the thin soil that sprouts up and overnight is gone. We say, yes, God. And then tomorrow morning, like, what, God? What did I say? Or the, a lot of, there's a lot of crowded soil I've noticed in Washington, D.C. Or it would be like the crowded soil. Say, you know what? That sounds great. Don't have time. Check back with me when my schedule is clear. Or we'll be the good soul and say, you know what? I'm okay. I don't know how, but you do. And I'm going to pray. How do you want me to react to this? We're all reacting to God in one of those four ways. One of those four types of soul. Okay, let's go on to the second parable. All these stack up against each other and they end in a beautiful story at the end. The second thing is this. Jesus' kingdom is meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared. We're talking about witnessing here. This is something like we hardly ever talk about here at Grace Community Church, but it's something that God calls us to. So he calls the disciples, he sends them out. 
to go and share and to witness. I don't want to talk about how you witness this morning. I want to talk about what would you witness if you did? What would you witness if you did? Look at this. Mark 4 says, do you bring a lamp? Now, Jesus is the lamp, right? He's the light of the world. So this is what he's saying here. Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? So immediately on the heels and telling he's soil blind, they're like, this isn't going to work. Can we just keep this among the disciples? Then can we just keep this amongst ourselves? Because this isn't a really good business model. Can we just keep this amongst ourselves? Do you put it under uh, on a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. Here's what I want to suggest to you in this here, is that we have a tendency to share religion and not share the gospel. And if we're sharing religion, we just shouldn't share at all. If we're sharing the religion of Christianity, we just shouldn't share at all. We should just stay quiet. What Jesus is saying here is share me. Jesus is the gospel. He is the, and so what we should do is we should share the gospel and not religion. But we have a very strong tendency to be pulled down to sharing religion, which gives no results at all. So what is the gospel? Just a just brief review from last week. You'd have to listen to last week's message, which is on our website, to fully understand this. Just brief review. Contrasting religion and gospel. Religion is this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm good. I'm obey. I do these things. I get the sin out of my life. Therefore, I'm accepted. That's religion. Here's the gospel. I'm accepted and I'm free to do anything I want. Because I'm accepted. Because I have said, yes, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm now free. Boom. Do anything I want. Go and just send it up as much as I want. I will never be rejected. I am accepted. That's gospel. It's gospel. Religion says the good are saved and the bad are rejected. The gospel says the bad are saved. And the good are rejected. I didn't come to call the healthy. I've come to call the sick. Religion says, any religion, any religion, pick it. It says, holy scriptures, whatever their holy scriptures are of any religion, it says, here it is. Okay, I, if I do this, I will be accepted by God. You know what the gospel says? God, I can't do this. And he says, good, you're in. Wow, that is really different. So last week, I got a little amped up you know when you're trying to really explain something maybe you can just like so at one point i said you know just go and sin all you want and i was thinking to myself later that uh you know maybe since we are a church that i shouldn't encourage sin so much uh so i just want to clarify if i can just a brief point here first corinthians ten twenty three says everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial there's a story in the bible about a woman, it says, that is caught in the act of adultery. And she's brought to Jesus by a group of people who are just trying to frame Jesus. They're trying to put him into a corner where he would have to say, okay, stoner, trying to frame her. And it's kind of a bizarre story right from the outset because it says she's caught in the act of adultery, and yet where's the guy? Like you didn't see the naked man running from the room? I, I didn't see the naked man. No naked man. And so she's brought, it's kind of a really shameful situation. What's really cool is Jesus shames the people who are shaming her. And that's when you want to say, go Jesus, man. Just I, And he just nails them. He humiliates them. And they walk away. Now, when he's done, um, and he bends down to her, and he says, you know, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. What was he saying when he said, go and sin no more? What was he saying? 
you know, hey, look, if you sin again, I'm not going to claim you. You're toast. You're rejected. If you do this, if you do this or any other sin again, it's over. Is that what he was saying? Well, that would like totally, that the whole story is just like blown because that's not the sentiment of the story or the gospel at all. He's saying something completely different. The gospel is we're free to do anything we want, but should we? Is it beneficial? Jesus, like any good father, says to this woman, you are forgiven, you are accepted, but there's a much better way to live than this. Isn't that what any parent would say to their child when their child is on the wrong path? Would you say to them, I disown you, never want to see you again, you make me sick, I reject you? Is that, what a, is that what a good parent would do? Would a good parent do that? A good parent would claim that child. A loving parent would never reject that child, right? But would, would say there is a better way to live. There's a wiser way. So 1 Corinthians 10, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial, is it? It's not. You know, if I live any way I want and just ignore everything in the Bible, not only am I going to hurt myself, I hurt a bunch of people around me. Here's the thing. Listen to this. Look. When somebody has accepted religion, when somebody has accepted religion and they sin, they fear the wrath of God. When somebody has accepted the gospel and they sin, they fear they've broken the heart of God. There's a tremendous difference between the two. Religion is death, everybody. It's leading to death. Some of you have seen the Pew survey. I know a bunch of did because all kinds of people sent it to me this past week. Pew study that was done recently. Fastest growing religion in America is no religion at all. You know why? Because religion's dead. And what Jesus says to us last week is religion is actually of the devil and it leads nowhere. Where the, where the power is, as Romans 1.16 tells us, is in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's where the power is, not in religion. There's a big difference between the two. And that is meant to be shared. Now, with all that background I just said to you, I want to say this. We have a tendency to always digress downwards to sharing religion and not sharing the gospel. All right. So uh, recently I was sent, somebody sent me a video about, uh, there was a number of pastors together in a gathering and they were talking about, they were saying these things like this. They said, you know what? It's time for pastors in America to be radical. Well, that got my attention because we're doing this series called Radical Shift. Okay, radical. Good. It's time to be bold. That got my attention too. Okay, it's be bold. And then they said this, the guy, there was like three or four pastors. And it was like a TV celebrity. I don't know who it was, but I knew it was some TV celebrity. He like got way up in the camera and he said, what are you pastors afraid of? And I have just enough testosterone pride in me that when somebody looks at me and says, you're afraid, don't call me. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I'm not afraid. What do you got to say? And then they went on to say, they said, there was a gathering of a bunch of mega, I don't know who the pastors were. All right. They were telling this story. Now these mega pastors. We need to be bold. We need to be bold to do what? What am I afraid of doing? Here's what you need to do. Be bold. You need to go out and tell America it's under judgment and tell people, Americans, under judgment because of your sin. You're sinning too much. You're sinning too much and you're under judgment. And you better stop your sinning. And until you do, until you do, you will be under judgment. You need to repent of your sin. Say with sin, sin, sin. You need to be bold and preach sin. That's religion. It's very biblical. 
It's very biblical. Elijah did it, right? You read through some, I mean, whoo, he just hammers. John the Baptist is pretty good at it too. Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's very biblical. It's only one problem. I don't read anywhere in the Bible where we're called to be followers of Elijah. Or John the Baptist. People tried to follow him. He says, no, don't follow me. Follow Jesus. And Jesus doesn't hammer religion. He hammers away on the gospel. This is why earlier in Mark, he says, you can't take the new wine, which is gospel. You can't take it and mix it with the old religion. Because if you put the new wine in there, it's going to blow it wide open. So my question is this. When you do share, and we all should share, are you sharing religion or gospel? And for me, I notice that I'm always drawn to sharing with people religion, and I have to check myself all the time and make sure I'm actually sharing the gospel, because the gospel is where the power is. We all know what it looks like, right? Don't we all, haven't we encountered somebody sharing religion? It's nasty. It's hurtful. I hear stories all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a family or this or I had an uncle or had an aunt. Man, they were just, and I didn't go to church forever because of it. No life in that. So we have to think about what we share. Okay. Next one. Next parable. Jesus' kingdom is a powerful mystery. It's a powerful mystery. This is what it says in Mark chapter 4. It says, Jesus speaking, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Listen to this. This is fantastic. Night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and he grows, though he does not know how. Now, remember, we're talking about a business model here. The first piece in the business model was we have no target audience. It's just everybody. Like, we see a bad opportunity and we run headlong into it by throwing the seed. Great business model. The next point of it is we tell people, you know, hey, look, you're you're not special. It's It's all the same. It's all about not religion, not about control, not about pride, any of those things, you know, it's about the gospel. And now we're saying to this, you're going to achieve radical results. And how are you going to achieve it? You say, I don't know. He says, the seed goes into the ground and he has no idea. Can you imagine standing before a group of people who you're trying to get money from and say, I want to present you my business model. And they say, well, can you tell us one thing? How's it work? I have no clue. Well, let's just open up the bank and give you all of our money because this is obviously going to be awesome. The gospel does not leave room for our pride, does it? All the power here he's talking about is in the seed. It's in the gospel. And this person here doesn't even know how it works. How do do we function in business? What are our business models? You take your A players, don't you? And you make a big deal out of your A players because you want everybody else to rise to the A player. So what do you do with the A player? You say, here's our A player. We're going to give them a plaque. And we're going to tell everybody, this is our A player. This is what everybody should act like. So in the gospel, you give a plaque. And here's what the plaque says. He contributed nothing. While incredible uh, results were achieved, he slept. There's the plaque. It's not very appealing. I, you know, I can't, I want to take some credit. I want to take some credit, there, and I can't take any credit. Write this one down. Religion appeals to our pride. Gospel appeals to our souls. Just so you know, the disciples are not liking this at all. The kingdom of Jesus is so so radically different. They are not liking it one bit. One last story, and we're almost done. 
Jesus' kingdom is very small. Jesus' kingdom is very small. I was going to bring a visual. You know, so Jesus, he understands that some of us are visual learners, right? Is anybody a visual learner here? Is, okay. I was thinking about bringing the visual. I'm sure Jesus probably did this visual, but you wouldn't be able to see it if I showed you. He says, let me show you what the kingdom of God is. And he pulls out a mustard. Now, I could have a mustard seed in my hand right now. You wouldn't know the difference. Here it is. Look at that. It's powerful. It's big. When we want to do something big, we want to do something big in business, we don't say, look at my little tiny thing that I have here. Right? We make big statements and big statements. Okay. I'll get in trouble for this later, but one more Steve Jobs thing. All right? Uh, they said this all the time about Apple. We're going to change the world. We're going to change the world. Big statement. So Jesus, he says, my kingdom is very small. And then God Almighty comes to earth. Little tiny baby. Born in a palace? No, born in a manger. Right? Out with the animals. His, pe- his parents were unknown poor peasants. He hangs out with outcasts and sinners. Don't we prefer things to be big and grand? He said, this is the way my kingdom works. Let's read it. Mark 4, 30, starting verse 30. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What's it like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants and and with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. We prefer grand and big, not this tiny and small. Right? And so his disciples are listening to this, and they're not liking this, everybody. You know they don't like it. You know why? Because we have all these stories about them. We have these stories like they're walking down the road with Jesus, and Jesus is a little bit ahead or behind or wherever he's at, and they have a big argument with each other. I mean, some of you are familiar with the story about them. They're arguing, and so they get to the place they're going. Jesus says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? Uh, well, we were arguing about who's the greatest in your kingdom. You think these guys are liking this story that the kingdom is small? How about this? This is great. His inner three were Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers. They get their mother. How humiliating. They get their mother to come and say to Jesus, we would like, I would like my sons to sit on your right and left. I don't care which one's on the right or left, Jesus. That's totally up to you. But I want them to sit on the thrones on the right or the left-hand side of you. Do you think these guys are into Jesus' kingdom being very small? This is not something that they... So religion likes things to be big. We can take credit. We can control it. It makes us feel special, right? I, I, did a, I did a wedding many years ago at a church in Alexandria. And, uh, you know, some churches really, really make a big deal out of their pastors. Like the pastor has their own parking spot with a big sign, pastor's parking, park there and go to hell, you know, right? Or... Uh, <laughs> potluck there's a potluck the pastor always pastor come to the front so i was doing a wedding there and i get there for the for uh the for the rehearsal at night this is many years ago i get the rehearsal and it's a big church and had this big kind of back area or foyer and there's a big area behind the pews before you walk down the middle aisle and there was like 30 or 40 people already there and i walked in and their wedding they had a whole team of wedding coordinators at this church and the lead coordinator saw me like poked her head up at the crowd and she just said the pastor's here. And she, my pastor's here. And so, oh, and so she moved everybody out of the way. And she comes, she grabs him by the hand, and she begins to 
to pull me as quick as she could up to the front of all of them. And the whole time she's saying, the pastor's here, the pastor's here. And the people are parting like the Red Sea. This is really cool. And we, she get, we get to the end of the part. And at the end, the last person standing in the way is like a 95-year-old lady with a hat on in the walker. And she's like, get out of the way. <laughs> pastor's here. And the lady's like, ah, you know, falling down on the road. It was beautiful. It's awesome. One of the most awesome things I've ever seen in my life. Why is it so awesome? Because that appeals to my religious side. That appeals to me religiously. But as far as gospel goes, it doesn't work. It's very small. I can't take credit. I believe firmly that we get to the end of this and the disciples are thinking to themselves very strongly, we don't like this at all. We feel, Jesus, that your business, I mean, you might be a great preacher, but as a CEO, you absolutely stink. This is not going to work. But even if it was to work, we don't want it to work. And then, here, 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 you know how it ends? All these incredible teachings, these parables, and then why does Mark tell us the very next thing to happen is, is Jesus is already in the boat, the other disciples get in the boat, and they go across to the other side, and then something fantastic takes place. They're going across to the other side of the lake, and this incredible storm breaks out. Now, listen. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Thirty, Just 30 miles away is Mount Hermon. It is 9,200 feet above sea level. Think of that gap, that distance. The cold air from the mountains, 30 miles away, hits the warm air from the Sea of Galilee, and it creates fantastic storms, and a fantastic storm hits them. Now, these are fishermen. Like, they're used to, they grew up on the lake. They know all about the storms. But they're so freaked out about this storm that they're, we're going to die. We are going to die. And we're told this, that Jesus is at the front of the boat, and he's sleeping on a cushion. Now, i got to take the time out and tell you something that's kind of cool right here. When you analyze eyewitness testimony, the whole book was written on this. When you analyze eyewitness testimony, you try to figure out, is this eyewitness telling the truth or not? And so when somebody is a genuine eyewitness of a story, they give you random details that doesn't, that doesn't push the plot along at all like sleeping on a cushion, or there were other boats around Jesus. When somebody fictitiously is, is saying, fictitiously of an eyewitness of the story, they give you details that push the plot along. So when people, this is not Bible, everybody. This is just the way we understand truth. What do you want to say? When somebody is giving you genuine eyewitness, they just happen to remember random details, like Jesus sleeping on a cushion. It is another solid proof that this is an eyewitness account that what we read in the gospel is true, okay? Although people tell you the contrary, oh, it's just a bunch of myths. No, no, this is standing up against solid reason and the way we understand eyewitness testimony. Back to the story. They wake him up in the cushion. He looks around, and he does this. Ready for this? This fantastic storm. He just says, quiet. Now, in an instant, in an instant like that, we're told that it goes completely dead calm. So we have raging seas. Lots of wind, boats just rocking, and all of a sudden, bam, sea of glass and not a whisper of wind at all. Now, they just had their prayer answered. We're not going to die. We should be really excited about it. Think about that. What if you ever had your prayers answered like in a huge way, like, like way beyond what you ever thought or imagined? Would you be happy? You know what it says about them? They were terrified. Why were they terrified? You know why I think they were terrified? Because they're realizing at that moment, oh, my gosh. He is the master of the house. He is God. 
and though we do not like his plan at all, and our wills are clashing with his wills and creating a fantastic storm out on this sea, he is the master of the house, and we can't win. How many of us this morning, God's speaking to you about something, and you're like, you're just dug in. (laughs) I don't care what you say. I'm doing it this way. We can fight God all we want, but the reality is is he is the master of the house, and as long as we fight him, all we're doing is making ourselves seasick. We can't win. I have fought God on so many things in my life. Fought and fought and fought. I can't win. You're not going to win. None of us are going to win. He's going to win. He is the master of the house. He is God. You want the storm to go away? Surrender your storm to God. Forget the clash of wills anymore. You have to surrender it. It's the only way the storm's going to go away. It doesn't go away any other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, your love and your gentleness with us. But, Lord, at the same time, you're very firm. You are God. You are the master of the house. For those of us here this morning, and there's probably many, that we have a storm in our life right now because our will is clashing with your will, Help us, Lord, to surrender the storm. Help us, Lord, to finally say, you know what, I can't win this. I just got to give in and allow God, you, to have your way in my life. Help us, Lord, to move forward in you. In Jesus' name, amen.